everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Earshots and Canyon and we've got a giveaway and a discount code for you coming right up. Earshots Bluetooth headphones are the perfect companion for riding and training, allowing you to listen to your favourite tunes or podcasts and keep that motivation high. For years, I've always struggled to find headphones that actually stay put while I'm riding or in the gym. Earshots patented magnetic ear clip solves the problem of earphones constantly dislodging and moving in your ear, so you can ride and train without distraction. I've been using Earshots for nearly a year now and they really do deliver on their promise. I've loved using them in both the gym and on solo bike rides. Earshots are based in New Zealand and they're supporting riders like Wim Masters, Sam Blenkinsop, Ray Morrison and Tuhoto Penne, so you know that these things are being tested under some serious riding conditions. If you want to find out more, then you can head over to earshots.com. Earshots are generously going to give away two pairs of their awesome headphones to lucky downtime listeners. All you need to do is to head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash earshots and drop in your name and email address. You've got until the 4th of January to get your entry in. Canyon have recently launched a fully updated talk family catering for every style, taste and budget with 29, 275 and mullet options in both carbon and aluminium frames. The Torque is a 170-180mm bike that's DH certified so it's designed to deal with the roughest of riding. As an example of what it's capable of, Canyon's team rider Tommy G combined the Torque with some triple clamps and used it for Rampage, so this thing is tough. The Torque isn't just a DH ripper though, it was designed to be capable of pedalling it back to the top of the hill too. The Canyon engineers put themselves in the shoes of riders who are heading to places like Whistler or Queenstown for a season and need something to handle fast bike park laps but that can handle a big day's pedalling in the backcountry too. They've even made sure that there's space for a water bottle. The Torque continues Canyon's drive to make bikes that are easy to live with and a pleasure to work on and maintain by using things like full internal cable guides, double seal bearings and replaceable thread inserts. It's another great looking and nicely thought out bike from the Canyon team. The Torque is in stock and available now over at canyon.com where you can check out the entire range. As a downtime listener, if you use the promo code all-features-unlocked-21, then you'll get a free bike guard on all torque, carbon and aluminium orders. That code is valid until the 10th of January, but I think these things are going to sell out pretty quick, so if you're interested, then head over to canyon.com now and check them out. Full terms and conditions can be found in the show notes for this episode, and that code again is all uppercase, all-features-unlocked-21. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Please make sure you're following the podcast wherever it is that you listen. There's going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where there's links to all the major platforms there to help you. Also, if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast, that'd be awesome. It's the best place for you to keep up to date with what's going on. And it's always lovely to hear from you in the comments and the messages there. This week, we're sitting down with Manon Carpenter and Tommy Wilkerson to chat all about their new film project, Trails on Trial. Find out how the project came about in the first place and hear about their experiences as they travelled around the country to chat with trail builders and landowners. With rising user numbers across all outdoor groups, trail access is under more pressure than ever before. Manon and Tommy found some great examples of where mountain bikers have been able to work together with landowners to create incredible trails like those in the Tweed Valley. This is a really positive outlook on what can be done to keep our awesome wild trails up and running, with some really useful thoughts on what all of us can do to help. So, without further ado, here's Manon Carpenter and Tommy Wilkinson. 
Manon Carpenter and Tommy Wilkinson. Welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Manon, we'll start with you. Last time we spoke was um, for episode 13 of the podcast, believe it or not, back in July 2017. I'm not sure if that was unlucky 13, but um, fairly soon after that, you announced that you were going to be stepping away from racing. Um, can you can you remember back that far? Like, what was the response like from the mountain bike world? Yeah, I definitely can remember. <laughs> um it was actually a really nice response. So there was about a month, I think, between me um, going home from the last World Cup I was at uh, to announcing that I was going to stop racing. And it was definitely scary. <laughs> the idea of putting out, you know, I didn't really know what, what I was thinking either. Um, but it was really nice and really supportive. And especially a lot of the women that I was racing with were really nice um, and sent some really nice messages afterwards. So, yeah, it was cool overwhelmingly positive I yeah. think. and how's it been being away from racing have you found that hard or not not particularly it's like ups and downs like you know if I watch a world cup I kind of can feel all the emotions again yeah um but I have enjoyed kind of having more of my own time um or at least being home more in the summer and things like that you yeah. know yeah I think there's always good things you can be doing so yeah I think I've managed to find things to do yeah good stuff and uh yeah what have you been up to over the last few years I've been at university being a student, mm-hmm. um, but also mixing that with a role that I've still managed to have in the mountain bike industry as a mountain bike ambassador and making a few kind of fun projects um, yeah. while doing my undergrad um, and kind of just continuing with that, really. Um, what were you studying? Geology. Okay. So, yeah, I think spending a lot of time in the mountains <laughs> kind of inspired. Yeah. I did it for a level and found it really interesting and, yeah, um, I think spending a lot of time in the mountains was like, yeah, kind of help me yeah, carry on with drive that. Drive you that way for sure. Cool. All right, Tommy, this is your first time on the podcast and um, you deserve a, a full podcast episode on your own to be fair. And we can remedy that at some point, but for now, can you just give us a quick intro to who Tommy Wilkinson is just so everyone is up to speed? Well, um, hi, first of all, um, primarily, I guess I'm a mountain biker. Um, I spent 15 years racing downhill um, and then in 2013 I had a bad accident some of you may or may not know which left me with a paralyzed right arm and from that I moved into the media side um, firstly photography then film and and now I've, I've got a little production company and uh, we work purely in cycling and make films and do projects and that's kind of how me and man on a I guess on on the podcast today, but but first and foremost, I'm I'm a mountain biker. First of all, is is how I would describe myself. Cool. And you've you've had an interest in the environmental side of things for a good while now. Am I right in thinking you're studying environmental science as well? That, that's right. Yeah, I'm I'm doing a combined master as well. I say I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm doing it part time, which is proving a challenge at the minute. But um, yeah, it, it, I've always been interested in it. Um, I wouldn't say it dominates my life, but it's it's something I'm very aware of and. And I find it quite fun in a, in a kind of nerdy way, I suppose. Good stuff. How do you guys know each other then? Was it through racing? It was through a really intense road trip in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> was that the first time we... I don't yeah, know if we would have been at some... I think, I think that was the first time we probably spent some time with each other, which was a bit of a baptism of fire, really, because um, we, we had a plan, which was probably a bit overambitious, that we'd um, do a... A, a film around Scotland, but we'd use no plastic and we'd keep it very um, low carbon. Um, 
but quite quickly we discovered how hard that was when you're filming kind of 24 hour days and you're starving and you're hungry and you just want to sleep somewhere. And um, yeah, I think we bit off a bit more than we could chew with that one. <laughs> awesome. So how do you get from, from that first project together to, you know, coming up with the idea for trails on trial? I think during that road trip, and then we did some filming at Langochland as well for another um, project that Tommy is working in. Uh, I think we've just talked a lot about kind of environmental issues or like land use and land access. And it kind of developed over the years. And Tommy's probably led quite a lot of that um, from his side. But I've also developed my own interests. Oh, yeah, well, I suppose we'd, we'd been chatting about um, a whole raft of ideas around cycling and envir- an environment and access. Um and, and it was just a conversation to, to begin with. Um, and quite quickly, as we looked into it a bit more, I think we probably started from a position of not naivety, but a, a little bit of innocence, I suppose, on the scale of, of this topic. Um, and then eventually these conversations kind of developed and we came up with the idea of saying, okay, well, um, we can see that there are some problems around land access um some of them are environmental some of them are social um should should we try and cover this in a film which sounds really simple and as we've discovered it was anything but simple yes yeah, Tommy was saying i think um it's kind of wanting to show how brilliant mountain biking can be for a lot of the places where we have it um and then also wanting to recognize some of the challenges uh, and i'm lucky to have um well i had contact with someone used to be a mountain bike ranger in natural resources wales and it's like the recreation manager now yeah um kind of got on a call with him to so i want to know what what goes on behind our trails like why are so many of them informal and why do some of them why do we lose some of them why are there tensions with the users sometimes i've always been close to a city like cardiff um and yeah i wanted to look a little bit at these challenges as well and present a balanced picture really and um, just understand a bit more what happens yeah. um, to our trails and yeah yeah fair play and do you think you know there's a lot that's gone on in recent years so we've got like the rise of digital apps like Strava and Trail Forks which make it a lot easier to find um, unsanctioned trails it also drives uh, maybe a, a competitive spirit while you're riding those trails to straight line things ignore other trail users, you know, cross fire roads at pace because you're you're hunting a Strava time, etc. And then we've had COVID as well, which has just thrown more and more people into the outdoors, which is a really good thing. But do you think some of that stuff's kind of come together to make what you're discussing and what you're looking at in the film even more important in in the last, I don't know, let's say 24 months? Uh, yeah, uh, I would say all of that is quite relevant. And I, I think Manon's alluded to, I think firstly, it's, I think people riding their bikes is amazing. So I think it's overwhelmingly positive that more people are out there riding their bikes, um, having fun and all of that stuff. Um, I do think digital apps and, and this kind of blurred line between trail riding and racing yeah. is um is a tricky one that, we actually haven't touched on much in the film because um, I think that's a subject all to itself. Um, but I think that has probably raised a few eyebrows um, and also just, just a rise in user numbers and, you know, everybody, gosh, I've built trails my whole life, especially when I was younger. Um, and it's just something that I did, you know, and I didn't give it a second thought. And 
by and large, it was it was tolerated because there wasn't that many people doing it. But I think as more and more people have started to do it, and some people scratch a trail in, but some people want to jump, some people want to berm, and it, I think as a land manager, it's something that you've probably been able to ignore and tolerate to the point where it's actually there's so much of it happening that you can no longer do that now. Yeah, and we've seen, I think, or it feels like we've seen increasing evidence of trail sabotage as well over the last couple of years. Like, there's, it feels like there's more, uh, more conflict, more issues going on out there. Maybe because of the amount of people that are in the outdoors, but the trail sabotage side of things is particularly horrible to see because it's it's clearly someone at some point is going to get badly hurt. Yeah, that was something actually that came up like May last year when we were kind of developing this idea. I'd seen, you know, it'd been on the news. Someone had been um, bought off their bike by a neck height wire across the trail. Um, And yeah, it's like, where does that come from? Why is that a thing? Um, I think as as you asked um, previously, we've spoken to, you know, the the major like government land authorities in Wales, England, Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, And they've each said... You know, the last two years, this increase in user numbers is what's put a lot more focus on trails, I think. Or that from all of them, you know, they, you know they're saying there is more focus on tra- these kind of trails right now. Um, and as Tommy said, it's always been tolerated slash ignored, maybe, for now. But, mm-hmm. you know, they have seen a lot more incidents, maybe conflict with other users, or just the number of people hurting themselves in the woods. So they are... They've become, yeah, it's, it's kind of flags what's yeah, going on. Yeah. Um, but in a way, it's also meant that, you know, a lot of it is being looked at, hopefully, um, positively or kind of pragmatically and like, okay, people want to use the woods. How can we make sure we can manage this yeah. for everyone using them and let people use them how they want to? Um, which, yeah, we've tried to show in the film and hopefully, you know, that is where it will go that it all just needs. Um, yeah. Some management and for sure yeah so it's a good opportunity in front of us basically it's a good it, it's a time where there's focus on it and we have the ability to to turn that into something super positive for us and i think i mean this film is 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 very uk focused which given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic kind of makes a lot of sense but is it fair to say that these challenges are pretty similar globally like i feel like i'm get i'm hearing similar stuff from people all over the place yeah, it's, it's all over. We had a pretty good quote from John Ireland, who's the Forestry and Lands Scotland, um, kind of person looking at trails. And he's like, he gets messages from, because Scotland seems quite progressive the way they're doing it. And he was like, he gets messages from like Hong Kong. Um, Bristol University was quite a funny one because he listed off this whole list of like around the world, like countries that are asking, you know, how do you, ma- you know, what is the way forward for mountain biking in this way? Um, so yeah, very much a global um, issue and we did look at some organizations in like France and Germany and what's going on there as well so yeah right. it's definitely worldwide yeah yeah fair play so you've you've decided that you want to make a film you want to do something around this where where do you start like it's a big project eh? Oof. Um, <clears throat> it became almost like um journalistic for a while actually for, for a long time I would say we probably did four months research maybe I can't remember it's all become a bit of a blur but there's quite a lot of research and, and you're kind of looking for positive examples and you have to look for where there's problems as well if you're going to give a balanced picture um, 
and we're looking at what's going on in each country and just trying to get a handle of 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 where where people are in in their kind of progress if you will for trails and if people care about it or if they don't care so there's all these different factors and and i suppose that the crux of it was for me certainly um is balance now if it if it is an issue or if it isn't an issue so and if it is an issue then it's worth making a film out of and if it's not an issue then it's not worth making a film out of so that was a, a big um kind of point of deliberation in in my brain certainly for, for a long time and obviously we concluded that it was worth making a film about and were brands pretty receptive because clearly you need to to fund a project like this somehow you'd hope that a lot of bike brands want to to help this issue forward was it pretty easy to get funded yeah we're really lucky um tommy was actually the instigator i think new farney cock of soil searching so mm-hmm. it's the specialized trail advocacy branch yeah and they are looking at how they can get involved to look after the places we ride in and the trails that we're riding um so they're already kind of looking at how they can be involved and tell some stories about the trails and also just help them um, in other ways. So luckily, well, yeah, as I say, Tommy was kind of instigating in that and it was amazing to have those kind of conversations with Arnie, like really like open conversations about how, well, what we wanted to do and that he was on board with it because it's not your typical riding video yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. And then Shimano, again, you know, they're, aware that you know companies need to be you know thinking about our trails and looking after them and they do support some trail organizations already um and i think yeah it was really cool they wanted to come on board and patagonia as well just really lucky i think to have these contacts at these companies that did want to get on board yeah um and we did have also had conversations with other companies who were like "Mm, (laughs) we're not in a place for this at the moment um or weren't so sure um but yeah, yeah, it's really cool that we did manage, you know, and it's a pitch that we developed over a year, really, and then took it um, to these companies. So really cool that they wanted to get behind it. Yeah, definitely. And good to see Patagonia moving more into the mountain bike side of things because it's a brand that appears to be doing really good things across the board. So nice to see them get more and more involved in the sport, which is cool. So that the film itself is called Trails on Trial. That's right. I have to think about that to say it properly. Um, <laughs> and you're looking, I guess, at what you've called wild trails um tommy do you want to just kind of give us what you feel your definition of wild trails is just so we're all clear uh, it, it's an unofficial trail that um might have been skidded in through the woods it might be historic it might have jumps in but but it's not official you go and ride it um like you would any other trail but yeah it, it's not an official trail and, and that, that's basically it um it's not recognized by the land manager shall we say is, is probably a better way of putting it uh-huh. yeah and i think a lot of us will have had experience of losing trails like this over our years of riding it's a fairly common and unfortunate side of this style of trail and it's always heartbreaking to see a good trail go so anything we can do to to help this and to make it all work has got to be a good thing so yeah give us a bit of a feel for um what you've discovered on your journey because you've basically traveled around the UK you've been to a lot of different destinations and I think it, it it's probably fair to say that Scotland and and particularly the Tweed Valley is a really good example and a great place to start because it I think they're kind of a bit ahead of a lot of the UK really yeah Scotland's pretty much like 10 years ahead I think <laughs> I mean it had um, developing mountain biking in Scotland has was set up to kind of not just wild trails but to help mountain bike go forward yeah um 
but yeah, they've got 18 trail associations set up across Scotland, like legit associations that can work, follow this framework that they've devised to work with the land owner, land manager, um, to maintain and look after their trails officially. Um, so they can like organize dig days and get people out, um, which is super cool. And then you've got, you know, a really like solid future for those trails or to work from, um, so yeah, Scotland's way ahead. Well, um, how have they got to that point then? Can either of you give us a, like a bit of an overview of, of the process they've gone through to get from, because they were there, you know, however many years ago, unofficial, unsanctioned wild trails. And now, like you say, there's this process where you can, I think you kind of map out the trail that you want to build. You submit that to the landowner and there's a process there that helps you get to a point where if everyone's happy with it, then it can be built and built legally and sanctioned, right? How, how do we get there? I think some of it's deliberate, um, designed with intention. So that could be Scottish Cycling helping set up developing mountain biking in Scotland um, to help develop a framework to say, okay, how do we officialize these trails or, or work with local communities? Um, because that's really important because each each area will have a different take and a different need um, on their requirements for, for trails. And some of it... Um, I don't want to bring politics into it too much, but but some of it has been politically led because you've had the Land Reform Act, um, which kind of changed the the landscape and how people could access land. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that I think that's been a big kind of a driver behind it all. And accessing land doesn't mean you can go and dig a trail, but it means more people are accessing land. They can go freely around it. They can use it for mountain biking. Um, so I think that's important. So I think they've had um, a coming together of intention social reform and some political movements which are all things that are quite difficult to make happen um but it's happened and that's allowed them to to make these steps and then some really key people behind it all like graham mclean from developing mountain biking in scotland who i think is a bit of an unsung hero really definitely yeah and are there there reasons why that model couldn't work elsewhere like is it is it very specific to scotland and the 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 landscape there politically and legally with stuff or could it work elsewhere yeah so i think the land reform act um like 2003 has already set up a much more like progressive use of land Uh for everyone living there and you do hear you know especially al mccannon from um forestry england saying how you know, la- uh, population pressure is just so different yeah, in fair. England. I'd say Wales is, you know, we didn't make it over to Northern Ireland, but um, Wales is probably somewhere between Scotland and England and they are looking at improving access, not making it the same as Scotland, but improving it because they recognise, I think, how important it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of in, in between. Um, and I'd say Wales is just about reaching... Um, They've set out a pretty detailed policy this year on how to manage these wild trails. Yeah. Um, so they are now, you know, really pragmatically and hopefully positively looking at how to do this and probably with quite a bit of inspiration from Scotland. They are all taking inspiration from yeah. Scotland. Like yeah. Scotland has proved that if you manage trails properly, you can reduce a lot of the risks that the land authorities kind of have to take on. Yeah. Did you hear much back then from kind of, I guess, the authority side in Scotland? Like was there... Are they really happy with how things have gone? Have they seen the benefits now of of letting mountain biking work in this way? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, they were really um, 
keen to be a part of the film and, and they were they've actually helped loads um which has been absolutely fantastic um and you know we did pose them some challenging questions which which they answered um so i think that they're generally happy with it i mean there's still some nerves and some trepidation and i think one thing that we have to bear in mind that when when you're dealing with this on a local level you're still dealing with people and every person whether they're working for a big organization or not will have their own view on things um so it could be that in some areas of Scotland, it, it takes a bit longer because the local forestry manager there has a different take to the guy who's running the national um, kind of strategy. So that's worth bearing in mind. But I think this national strategy has really helped give a clear sense of direction to all these local land managers and groups. And it's allowed them to take it forward. And you look now, you've got Ballater that's really developing. You've got the Tweed Valley, which is... I mean, when I first went to the Tweed Valley 20 years ago, it was always amazing for riding, but it was a completely different place yeah. to what it is now. It's changed so much. Um, you've got Dunkeld, you've got Tayside, you've got Perthshire, you've got stuff going up in Fort William. So the way they've been able to scale this model, I think is, I think Forestry Land Scotland, from what I can gather, seem pretty happy with that. And it's something they're trying to to increase the scale of. Yeah, they must be seeing some pretty serious economic benefits from it as well, right? Like it's like you said, Innerleithen is a completely different place to twenty years ago. The amount that mountain biking must be putting into the local economy there is is significant, right? Yeah, I think there's a stat in the film, isn't there? Like twenty fifteen it was one and a half million um to the economy, which will have like increased massively. Yeah. By now. Yeah. Um we tried to compare this with some other industries in Scotland, but it's so hard to get values, specific values for different um like industries that go on but yeah i mean you can't deny the the benefit it brings to local economies across the country and rural economies as well mm-hmm. you know it's t- you know it's a really important industry and something in south wales as well like the groups we've spoken to in the film um they really want people to come and visit the valleys and bring you know benefits to their local areas through mountain biking um you know it's, that's not the same case everywhere not all trailblazers want people to go and ride their trails but yeah, yeah. um you know, it, the people we've spoken to from South Wales, you know, they are groups that really do want to make it work because they want to see these benefits yeah. um, to their local communities and for people to come and visit. There's an example, I think, from South Wales where um, Strava actually came in handy. They were able to look at the the heat maps, I think, to look at traffic and they could show that quite a lot more people were using the unsanctioned trails than the trails that were sanctioned and had been officially built, which kind of helped them in their arguments, right? Yeah, and that's kind of really exciting, I think, the fact that you can show that because so many people really want to use um, your wild trails or use any, you know, use an area the way they do, the fact that you have that many people using it makes that area really important. Um, and you do see that in quite a lot of places, I think. If you can prove that people are, you know, benefiting from um, natural land area or these trails, you know, you have to recognise that that's a good thing that people want to get out and find a way forward for it. Yeah. Um, to keep it there definitely and there's another example there is it van road trails that's like it's a slightly different setup they're leasing the land so there's, there's not just one way to do this i guess yeah so van road trails lease the land um so van road trails you know probably a reason why i've come to think about these topics more so my dad built the original dirt jumps at van road and yeah. then they got destroyed um which was absolutely heartbreaking for him i think <laughs> well I it, it would have been um but they did get put back in partnership with NRW, Natural Resources Wales, who are um, the Forestry and Environment Agency together. 
Um, so they did help put them back in a, in a different format. And with the, um, with like the stipulation, I guess, that Van Ridge Hills had to be a community interest company uh-huh. to look after them, which they have done. And it's a brilliant place. You know, it's um, free access for anyone. Kids like get the train on all sorts of bikes to come and ride. Sweet. And it's super cool to see. And yeah, so they lease the land. They have to pay insurance every year, um, which, you know, speaking to mountain bikes in South Wales, that's not the way we see these local networks of trails should go. It's kind of a different thing. Van Road, it's quite like a very localised and like jump focused spot as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they have managed to work with NRW and make that work. Um, it's just how kind of these local networks of trails um, around the UK is going to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk a little bit about one of the English examples. So you guys visited um, the Ride Sheffield crew and, and Steve Pete, I guess, is the the most well-known face of that. But there's definitely a, a few really awesome guys that are putting in some serious graft there as well. Tommy, can you give us some thoughts on, on the Ride Sheffield crew and how they've set up? Yeah, I think, um, well, we interviewed Henry Norman, John Horscroft, um, PE, uh, as well as some other guys. We actually interviewed a guy called John Dallow from the uh, from the council. He, he didn't make the final cut, sadly. He's a um, legend, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I guess you'll know him, but um, he, I think he's been really influential. But I think what what Henry did was kind of outline wh- why it would be a good thing for a start. Um, and I think that's the key with any of this because I can absolutely see why if you're a mountain biker and you know you, you're not having any communication with land manager or authorities and a lot of the time that that does happen they aren't proactive in contacting mountain bikers um you'll just assume that it's, it's not a problem or you know everything's all all cushy um so henry kind of outlined yeah there could be some potential problems but also actually this is a really positive thing we can get more trails we can you know work with this group here and there's a bit of land here we can work with them possibly if we do this the right way um so they built lots of collaborations. They've done stuff with the Wildlife Trust, which is, I mean, Grenoside Woods, owned by um, Sheffield and Rotherham Wildlife Trust, I believe, yeah. um, which is amazing, really. Um, the fact that you've got mountain bike trails on a piece of land owned by a wildlife trust says quite a lot to me. Um, they've done a lot with the council. They've done a lot with kind of outreach to to schools and youth and their dig days. And I just think um, while there's quite a lot of mechanisms in behind the group, to actually get involved with it's really simple and it's fun. Um, and they've, and they've kind of made it a cool social movement, if you like. Um, and I think that's, that's a really impressive thing to see how they've dealt with bureaucracy by making it fun for people. Yeah. Yeah. They've done a lot around the edges, like with obviously that, you know, the steel city race is well known, but they have the, the Christmas social where they get people there and they have a chat and load of beers and the turnout, I went a couple of years ago and the turnout is, is really impressive. But I think with, with Ryan Sheffield and, and with a lot of these groups, it, they've all started with a relatively small group of passionate people that have put in some hours to make this happen. And I think a lot of people maybe feel powerless or they don't really feel like they can change anything. But I think all of these groups show that actually it, it, it's been groups of maybe three, four, five people that have just got their heads together and, those groups have grown and they've got a lot of support, but it started off pretty small in every instance. Right. And they've solved some seemingly big problems and made massive advances for the local areas. Yeah. It's probably a combination in every, yeah, every group we've spoken to has, you know, a real core group of people who've, who've made it happen. Um, 
but then you do also need you know you also need the broader riding community to get behind them as well because just having the numbers I think you know you have a core group of people who have maybe like the vision of what they want to do but then having the support of other riders in their area really helps that as well because mm-hmm. they can say look this many people want this to happen um so there's kind of lots of different ways you can get involved and I think anyone getting involved a little bit or just being on board with what they're trying to do or the messages um they're trying to put out um is also really important and then you know when they do put out these community dig days if you can go along to them you know you can just join in that way um so it is really cool to see how kind of everyone can kind of play a different part um but obviously you do need that initial real strong engagement i think to make it happen yeah um which is you know it is a massive undertaking i think um i'm sure not every group does succeed but it is cool to see that it can be done yeah. and this is what can happen when it does you know make it the whole way yeah fair play so in your journey in putting this together did you find any examples of anyone who hadn't been able to achieve what they kind of wanted to achieve does that make sense were there, were there failures yeah they really tommy can think well i did but i'll just say so henry norman and john horsecroft they'd both been originally members of the British Mountaineering Council, BMC. Mm-hmm. So they both kind of had some background in being part of an organisation. But I think, if Henry said, but they'd been kind of part of groups that hadn't quite gone the whole way either. Okay. But they kind of saw that as that was a learning experience. You know, so they'd maybe tried something somewhere else and it hadn't worked. But then, you know, you try it again and it does work. Yeah. Um, which is quite cool. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of an iterative process, this. Um, de- developing groups um especially when it's well it's just change isn't it i think if you strip it back down to basics and and change can be quite unsettling for for many reasons um so it's just an and you know if you've got a big group of people loads of people have different ideas so it's just trying to find that balance of compromise while also keeping it um keeping it fun um so i think ride sheffield have done that really well but we did have some um did have one area which um, I don't want to go into too much detail where um, I, I suppose a very rural community that was quite fragmented um, uh, and a lot of tension and, and disagreement within that community about how to, how to deal with things. Um, and, and we had a few people pull out of interviews because of that. Um, so that, that was a, that was interesting and quite insightful um, because that, that was absolutely not what we expected in this particular area. Do you think that could be resolved? Like, is it fundamentally such an issue that there's always going to be a problem there? Or do you think it's just something that's going to take some time? Um, I think it's probably, it's not so much the nature of the biking community there. I think it's just the nature of um, a rural community that, you know, if you drive five miles one way and five miles the other way, and you've got three villages in a line, they're all going to have different ideas about how things should be done. So overcoming that is, is, is really challenging, especially when everybody's invested in the landscape so much, but possibly for different reasons. Um, That can be, uh, I think that's probably a long-term thing to overcome there, but that isn't, that isn't just reflected of the biking community though. That's a, that's a wider challenge that the biking community is part of. Fair comment. I think that's where you know, in in that particular area and lots of areas it's where you know this community of all different kinds of people who all have different thoughts on how that area should be um, run or looked after. 
But I think the only way you get anywhere with that is people talking to each other. Um, so I've joined a stakeholder meeting in some of the woods um, near Cardiff. And a lot of them haven't ever, there's never been a mountain biker on the call. Two of us went along this time. And the, you know, the image they have of mountain bikers is just so far from what I think of myself as a mountain biker. Yeah. And, you know, the people I know as mountain bikers. Um, so, you know, the starting point there is just to talk to other users. And, you know, we all just want to enjoy this place. We don't want to make your enjoyment any less. Um, and talking about how that can go forward. Um, and I was going to say as well, you know, we did go and talk to the success stories because we wanted, you know, the positive examples. But there's lots of, exa- well, there's a recent example near me where a trail has recently been removed and there was no engagement. So I, uh, a notice got put up saying this trail is going to be removed and they left an email address at the bottom for Natural Resources Wales. And I did email them to ask, you know, why is it going to be removed? Have you managed to speak to anyone from the local community? Um, you know, cause it's someone else's trail in a different area to where I live, but yeah. they hadn't had any other emails, so they don't know who to talk to and they can't okay. talk to anyone who's building there, Yeah, which is also a difficult position, right? Because you know, you're building a trail that you don't have permission to build. So are you going to go and talk to NRW? Yeah. Fair comment. But there's no conversation there. And I think that if there's even a little bit of conversation, there's like a little bit more chance that the trail could be modified. Um, which is what NRW is saying. Um, in Not in every place, but in a lot of places, if a trail can be modified to be safer or more manageable, it's more likely to stay. Yeah. But you need to be able to have that dialogue in the first place. So it's just talking to yeah. each other as well. Yeah, fair comment. You, that, that kind of brings up this whole, I guess, fear that a lot of people have that as soon as they engage with a, a government body or a large body like that, that the trail is going to get sanitised to a point where they don't enjoy it anymore. I think it's probably fair to say that from what you've seen on your travels around the UK, it can definitely be done because there's a, there's some very, very technically challenging, difficult, fun trails up in the Swede Valley for sure. Um, that are all, you know, above board these days, but I guess sometimes there will be some compromise, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there will be some compromise and there will be things that landlords can't, can't agree with um there's some photos in the documentary tommy might want to talk about pallet land you know some features you know they just they can't be accepted if it's um if they're taking on the risk for it go on then pallet land tommy yeah this this came up a lot in an interview with a guy called called dave liddy and um i, I must i must admit i i, I am I am cynical towards government bodies, so I'm, I'm going to put that out there. And I don't mind saying that, um, but I'm more than willing to speak to them um, because I quite enjoy hearing their point of view and, and everything else like that. Um, so initially I thought, oh, well, what is it? So he sent me some pictures. And um, I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And, and even if I wasn't from a government body, I would never build something like that because it was just, it basically somebody had got um, old blue... Um, pallets and I can't remember what they're treated with but that in itself's a problem and they'd they'd built some North Shore and they just roped it to these tiny little um, Sitka spruce trees that that were under undergrown anyway um and everything was rotten and uh, you know they'd use bits of moldy OSB on the top and it kind of looked like you would potentially fall through it um so they'd obviously found it and removed it but there was a, there was a whole trail like that but I think that also comes down to um kind of as as a rider 
for me personally, I just thought, well, I wouldn't have had a sense of pride in building that either, actually. Um, so the, I think there was something in that as well. Um, so there are some things they, they won't tolerate um, because, you know, that's just way too much risk for them to accept that. But if you flip that on its head from a rider point of view as well, uh, it's not something that would it would appeal to me at all or to build either because, uh, you know, you'd want to have a sense of pride in what you're building as well. Yeah. So if people are building trails, are there certain things they should be paying attention to so that if they do get to the point where they're having this conversation with the landowners about access and trying to get things made formal, that they're not going to have to make huge changes. Are there certain kind of, I guess, ground rules? Um, that uh, unofficially, Yes. Um, but we, you know, we've, we've got, we've got it on record on the interviews, actually. I think generally if, um, if it's a crop plantation, let's focus on the kind of the big agencies. So forestry commission, forestry land, Scotland and natural resource Wales. I think that's the simplest way to approach this. Um, you know, the majority of their woodland is commercial and it's a crop. Now, if you come off the fire road and you just weave your way down to the crop and that happens over and over again, so it becomes what they would call a desire line. Um, so with no built features, generally they're going to tolerate that and accept that mm-hmm. if you then go in and build a berm or chop a tree down or build some north shore that's going to escalate things to a level where they're going to have to check it um because you know if you've cut the tree badly and somebody falls off and it hits them and worst case scenario it goes through their rib cage and you know that that's an issue for them a serious issue for them um so i think the 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 kind of official line would be don't do it in the first place, um, approach the landowner first, but they will tolerate, you know, just a skidded in desire line. As soon as you start building anything or working with hand tools, that's going to escalate things that could potentially become a problem or you're, or you're going to have to engage with them at that point. I just say for trails that are existing right now, so in South Wales, um, and it is the case in lots of places, the main concern is what, well, yeah, Tweed Valley as well, anywhere where there's trails that cross a path that other users might be using, yeah. that is the main issue. Okay. Gap jump over a path that other people might use is like absolutely <laughs> no in their eyes. Yeah. And But even a desire line that is technically allowed at the moment, it's yeah. permissive, right, that mountain bikers have. You can do, use these desire lines, but if it pops out 90 degrees onto a fire road or a walking path or footpath, they that's a big issue. And that does happen with an awful lot of trails. And hopefully it gets to the point where you know they can say if well yeah in, informally they will say if you can make it make a corner before yeah. you get to the fire Slow road it down. and yeah. so you and anyone else on that footpath or fire road can see you coming um that's a main thing and so for like the risk of riders you know kind of saying they don't really mind nrw doesn't really mind what's on the trail as long as the entrance to the trail is harder than anything you see on the rest of the trail okay and there's, there's, you know, there aren't these dangerous points of conflict with the users. Yeah. Crack on and do what you want in between, which is quite cool. Yeah. You so know, because you kind of accept that, yeah, okay, I'm going down this um, wild trail. I'm kind of accepting what's going to be on there. It's just anyone else in the woods who might not have accepted that risk. Yeah. Fair enough. You, you mentioned a couple of things, Manon, that I wanted to pick up on. The first one, you mentioned the BMC, the British Mountaineering Council, I think, which is, I guess, like a national body. The is there really anything kind of within the UK for mountain biking where th- this challenge could live? 
Yeah, so <laughs> I can see your face to you ask that question. Like, <laughs> is that possible? Um, so yeah, uh, throughout interviewing people for the film, um, the BMC, British Mountaineering Council, so for climbing, has come up a lot. Yeah. Um, and Open MTB has also come up a lot. So they're an organisation that we're trying to get more access in England and Wales for mountain biking. Um, they've kind of um, stopped doing that f- for now, or they've closed that now. Um but you know this this discussion does come up that we have British cycling, but they're more so far. You know that's more the competitive side of things, and I haven't seen other than developing mountain biking in Scotland really any you know British cycling um, look at these wild trails. And I think it's because it's such a grey area. Yeah. Um, and from discussions with so Bob Campbell, who's the um, recreation manager of South East Wales, and and Dave Liddy. Um, in Natural Resources Wales, I think they're saying if mountain bikers have a cohesive voice, and it is true, so in South Wales you have all these pockets of local riders who are having conversations to different degrees with NRW, how can we take our trails forward? Yeah. But that's lots of different conversations and small voices. Um, but if there was a regional voice or, you know, in South Wales or a voice for like the whole of the UK for this kind of mountain biking you have so much more weight and you can also direct the conversation a little bit more. You know, you're not just getting told you have to do things this way. Yeah. You know, there's kind of space for a bit more dialogue and you just carry a bit more weight. So yeah, like BMC and the Ramblers, um, you know, there's lots of established organizations for other outdoor sports. Yeah. Wonder and where, we're kind of lacking that. Yeah. I wonder how they got there in the first place. I don't know how those kind of organizations came together. Cause we've got British cycling, Welsh cycling, Scottish cycling, but I can't, can't see how that sort of fits in that network at the minute but yeah, but, yeah. there's been there has been talk Dave Liddy said British Cycling might be helping to develop um I don't know like criteria um or like a way to kind of check these trails and check they're acceptable yeah. so they kind of might be dipping their toes in and now okay. that NRW has a policy for them maybe that makes it easier to get involved yeah um but I think there's definitely still space for just like mountain bikers in their like regional areas kind of getting together and just having more of a voice. And so you can go to, you know, like land use forums, land access forums, you know, and yeah. sit there and, you know, have, have the weight of, because there's so many mountain bikers um, and just have the weight of, you know, all those voices. Definitely. The other thing you mentioned was kind of how we're perceived as users in the outdoor and how you felt that differed from how you perceive yourself and your friends. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we were kind of new in the outdoors and, uh, very much not welcome certainly initially and I think that's improved a, a lot what was the experience that you guys had out on the road um you know connecting with other user groups and, and speaking to people across the UK how, how do you think we're doing on on that side of things uh, I think um we're doing all right actually I mean it could be better there, there is um you know we didn't actually interview anyone for the film who who despises mountain biking. We, we, we didn't do that. Um, but everybody, you know, we spoke to took a fairly balanced approach. And and I think for a large part, we, we're walkers as well. You know, all of us will walk around the woods, whether that's walking the dog or whatever. So we do have, we can take that viewpoint. Um, but I think it, it could be better. Um, and I think Manon alluded to that. I think it comes from a point of, oh, it's it's not fear, but, uh, you know, it's those interactions that we have. If and if you know, if you're walking and somebody you don't hear a bike coming in at blast past you, that scares people. 
Um, so I think that that can lead to conflict um, and it gets emotions higher. Um, and I think Manon will have a better idea of this than me because I live in a rural area where it's generally tolerated, tolerated because we've got so much space. Um, I think kind of where you've got denser populations, it, it can be a bit trickier to solve as well. Yeah, so when we were kind of developing ideas for the film, I said to Tommy, there's a, so Caffili where I'm from, top of Caffili Mountain, there's like a snack bar kind of thing. Yeah. But you you know, you know ride past it to get to trails and you'll ride past other walkers. I said to Tommy, I wanted to like set a camera up at the top and just ask people, you know, what's your opinion of mountain biking? Because obviously everyone we've spoken to in the film is trying to work positively for mountain biking. Um, because there definitely is still opposition. Most people you will meet will be, um, very pleasant and happy yeah. to see you out. But yesterday I was out on my bike and, and one of the people we interacted with stopped and said to us what a shame it was that mountain bikers were basically ruining the area. And this meeting I went to with the stakeholders, you're very, I think it is, part of it is fear. Part of it is they see mountain bike as destructive and some of it is they are genuinely scared. If you're not used to going faster than mm-hmm. walking pace, a bike goes very fast. Yeah. Um, and the risk of riders, there's a very vocal, small but very vocal opposition to their trails, and that makes it very difficult. So maybe if, even if it's a small minority, it does make it difficult, and that's why it's so important to kind of represent the mountain biker's voice as well. Um, and there's always minorities in every use. There'll always be mountain bikers who maybe will make it a bit difficult by yeah, <laughs> not yeah. behaving that considerately. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of why more... Um, discussions between news groups as well is yeah. very important. And there's some great examples, especially more recently of mountain bikers, you know, almost going above and beyond within the outdoor world. I think, you know, organizations like trash free trails is a great example of mountain bikers leading the way on something, you know, like everyone's using the trails. Everyone to some extent is responsible for some of the mess and it's the mountain bikers that are going out and cleaning it up. And I think it, stuff like that's, got to be beneficial right we're we're leading on that i'd say trash free trails is absolutely brilliant i think and for you know improving the places that we ride in but also this yeah as you say showing that mountain bikers care about where they're riding and i've been along to um at least two trash free trail days now where mountain bikers have organized the cleanup but other user groups have joined as well like runners walkers and they're all there all improving their local area and all interacting with each other and that's so cool, I think. Um, yeah, that's yeah. it's a great way of showing that, you know, everyone can just work together to look after the places that we use. Yeah, and it doesn't take a huge amount, right? It's a bit of time every now and again to go and do something that isn't just riding your bike around the woods. But I think that the uplift in our reputation within those communities as a result is well worth those hours. Yeah, and something else that we wanted to touch on, and maybe Tommy will um, might have something to say on it, but... At Ride Sheffield, they've also, they've, they've termed it the Ride Sheffield Plantation, but they've gone out and helped plant trees on the, on the moors, um, which is also super cool and a great way to show that, you know, you're invested in the places that we use. Um, I think we might have liked to have touched on it a bit more in the film, but there was so much to go in. <laughs> yeah, go on, Tommy, tell us, give us your take on that. I know, I, I think, you know, with, um, <laughs> well, with changes that are coming into agricultural law and, and land use and nature recovery programmes, that are coming through, there's actually a, a massive opportunity because in some areas, um, how land is managed will change. Um, and whether that's 
a new a new forest being planted, or whether that's a forest being felled, um, or you know peat bogs being restored. But generally, they're in landscapes that we're going to be interacting with. Um, so what quite interests me is actually is how as mountain bikers can we come into those conversations and say, yeah, okay, actually we do care about this landscape. Um, maybe we'd like to have some trails here, but is there a way that we can help you actually make your aims for how you want to manage that land come to fruition? So that could be through volunteer labor. It could be through fundraising because a lot of these land managers are, are going to have um, changes, not forced upon them, but they're going to be pressured into changing the landscape and, and they need help to do that. So I think that's an interesting way where we can collaborate with them to potentially get more trails, but also benefit ecology and landscapes and communities and everything else that comes along with it yeah and you i think you have an example from your work with the naughty northumbrian of of how mountain biking can help positively uh, in an environmental context yeah i mean on, on a really basic level we um the field that we rent off um off the farmer that's in something called an arable reversion scheme so what that basically means is is he'll get a subsidy for not cropping that field and not ploughing it because it's close to a water course, which is a triple SI. Um, but it's a without site of special scientific interest, is that right? Yeah, which is a site of yeah. Um, and water courses, you know, we I think we've all seen in the media in how bad health they are. But without the seven thousand quid that we pay him for that field, it actually becomes quite financially difficult for him to not crop that field. Um, and that's a lot of money and not every group can can do that. But that's one example of direct implication of what mountain biking can do to benefit the environment. So instead of having a ploughed field where you're going to get lots of runoff into the river and damage it, you've actually now got a red clover meadow and, and you can afford to keep it like that. Um, so there's lots of ways that, that we can expand on that and continue that to, to benefit the environment through through us being there. Yeah. So lots of opportunities coming up with some of those political changes. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. And you obviously you've been out and you've spoken to some of the, I guess, the more engaged members of the mountain bike community that are at the forefront of this. But I think it's, it's fair to say that most mountain bikers are fairly keen to engage to some level in this kind of thing. I think people see the, the need and the positive uh, things to come out of this. There's a recent survey I think it's a DM Bins thing that I saw of 3,780 European riders. And I'll, I'll just read out one of the conclusions from that. So this is reading from their paper. Connection to nature was an important source of motivation and the use of mountain bike trails has increased riders' appreciation of and willingness to protect nature with a large majority having taken direct action to do so. Mountain bikers are prepared to contribute towards trail maintenance through the provision of labour or financially Although most mountain bikers make use of wet trails and illegal trails, the incidence of conflict is relatively low. So it sounds like there's a uh, you know plenty of willingness out there in the community. Where where do we go from here? There's some great pockets, but there's still a lot of work to be done, and the, the pressure is only ever increasing. I think as we get more and more users. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think the, the Scottish. Man and I did a talk at the Developer Mountain Biking in Scotland conference, and one of the questions we got posed was, um, "Has has what we've done in in Scotland been worthwhile, and is it recognised over the globe?" And, and my initial answer was yes, actually, because it's given us a model that that we can try and copy. Um, 
and and that isn't at the forefront of Forestry England's mind, but the fact that we can take this model that they've adopted and there's real positive examples that we can share to all our rider friends and say, actually, look at what they've done. Look how good this is. Um, that helps us set up these groups and, and continue that forward. And I think that the way to take it forward is, I think we do need, as Manon says, we, we do need something that is representative of, of trail riding and non-competitive cycling as as a group, but we also need things to happen on a local level. That, that's a really big thing for me because that's where people actually, their, their focus of care really is on what's around them. And that's how we lead it. So it's, it's local people who live and are invested in these communities, having a say in how that land is managed and how, how their trails are protected for the future. That's a, a really important thing for me. And I think, there's lots of different ways at different levels to get involved so like the basic one is just be aware of where you're riding and how you're interacting with everyone around you that that's the easiest way to make the jobs of well the work of organizations that might be in your area so much easier yeah um and then if there is a group near you like get in touch see if see if there's a way you can get involved um i know by me there's starting to be conversations now and having riders involved and engaged in those discussions is really important and if you get an opportunity to go along to a, a meeting of stakeholders of an area you know it's i think it's so important to show up for mountain biking and have a say um and then there's also this um well and then within riding groups there seems to be that there's kind of something for everyone to do everyone kind of brings their own skill set okay. you, know, you might have someone who's more like building trails but you might have someone who has a really like paperwork heavy day job there's someone someone we spoke to his you know their job is uh health and safety okay that's his job yeah so he's perfect for helping with some of the red tape um that might be involved um and that's been really cool to see um so everyone kind of has something to bring yeah um and then there's like the you know the mountain bike industry as a whole kind of just maybe having a look at what's going on and, and they are starting to have a look i think you know recognizing that these trails are so important and you know, so much of the mountain bike industry is <laughs> based on these kind of trails. Um, so there's all sorts of levels from just your rider to someone who can get involved at a, a much higher level. Yeah. Um, Good stuff. Where, where would you recommend people go for kind of help or guidance if they're, if they're looking to try and do something in their local area? Like what, how would you go about it if there's nothing existing? Um, Oh, it's it's difficult. It's it's so regionally based that I think if you're in Scotland, um, developing mountain biking in Scotland are an amazing resource. So you can get in touch with them and they can then direct you to a local group if there is one. Or they can offer you some guidance on if, if you're of a mind to how to set that up. Or they might say, yeah, okay, you don't want to set a group up. You just want to speak to your local Milan manager and have an informal conversation. And I think that's also fine. So so that's where I would go in the first instance. In England, um, it's a bit trickier. Um, there are groups. So again, it's it's trying to figure out, speaking to other riders, um, finding out if there is a group. And then beyond that, I suppose, it's it's trying to find out who your land manager is, which becomes more complicated. And, and in Wales, I think there are probably enough a big enough riding community that again, just through having conversations with your pals when you're out riding um, would be enough to, to begin those conversations of, of how you can help and get involved. Yeah. And as Manon says, you can do that on every level, whether you just want to go along to dig days 
or whether you do want to get involved in going to meetings and and that side of it yeah and some of these um i guess associations trail associations that have that are more advanced are in a position to accept donations i know tweed valley mm-hmm. it's relatively easy to, you know just via their own website to donate like if you ride there a few times a year maybe you're not local maybe you're not going to get up there and dig but you can certainly you know pay back a little bit because you're not paying to use the trails at the end of the day so it's um yeah easy to, it's in some instances anyway to get in touch with the trail associations and give them a bit of help to keep these things going because at the end of the day often it relies on a lot of hours from volunteers right yeah yeah it is it is volunteers who've who've yeah all these trails are built by someone in their free time because you know they want to ride and they maybe want to provide places for other people to ride as well um I was going to say in the where to go, it, it, it's um, like NRW and Forest England and yes, Forest England Scotland will on their website have some kind of information about how they're managing wild trails. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess you can have a look and just see what they're saying um, and maybe what they, yeah, I don't know. It is, it is a tricky one. And I think getting, you know, contacting with other riders in the area as well to make a group. So if you do then want to, you know, if you do then approach land authority or land manager, you've at least got like a coherent group yeah, to have a conversation with. Good stuff. And there's, I guess, some support financially and in other ways coming out of the industry. And there's a few, a few brand examples that I'm aware of. So you've mentioned soil searching, which is the specialized side of things. There's pay dirt from Santa Cruz. Fox have recently launched the trail trust. Are there any others that you guys are aware of i couldn't think of any more but those are the ones that stand out I, th- I think shimano have um have some kind of set up possibly just in north america at the minute um but they are conscious of it and i think i think they are funding groups in north america and i think you also get quiet donations as well from some brands in the industry i know Cotic, i think they've supported um ride sheffield um i think one thing that and it's great that they've volunteered that and they've kind of led on that, these brands. Um, it would be interesting to see how we develop that further. Um, I'm a big believer if, it, you know, if your business um, has some form of reliance on these trails existing, which most bike companies do now, um, you should be giving back to that in one way or another mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be financial it could just be vocal advocacy support um for example we've been looking at a scheme with a landowner here and when we talk about brands um there are a couple of brands we mentioned and for them the prestige of being associated with that bike brand was quite appealing okay um so whether that was financial or just being attached to them so so there is, there are other ways of doing it than just financial you know, we have globally recognized brands that do carry some social value. It's a really interesting thing, actually. When we were making this film, it made, um, well, when, at least with NRW, initially trying to talk to um, one of the people who worked there, the fact that we had big brands supporting the film made them a little bit more comfortable to talk to us. Okay. Kind of because in a way they realized that it would be a, a pretty responsibly put together film, like it wasn't going to be too <laughs> I don't know controversial in, in either way which was really I was really surprised at it actually and I was like okay it's kind of I don't know but you know the fact that you have big companies wanting to support um a message cause or yeah. whatever it, um 
does have some weight. Yeah, I w- yeah, I wouldn't have expected to hear that. That's interesting. Yeah, That's cool. yeah. We think about these brands as being niche in our own heads. I guess we feel like we're in this niche sport, but it's it's really not, is it? To some extent, especially some of the bigger names. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you say specialized Shimano, Patagonia, you know, they're all. If you don't, if you don't mountain bike, you, prob- you yeah, probably yeah, might have an brands. idea, yeah, yeah, of what who they are for sure. Good stuff. Is there anything you guys want to add? Is there anything I've missed that you've kind of found interesting, important from your your work on the film? I think, I think for the most part that um, I do think mountain biking's in in a pretty good place, and and I think this documentary is important because there are there are a few bobbles, you know, that, that everybody's working to to sort of, but that is to improve mountain biking for for the most part, um, just to make it to make it better, really. Um, so I think that's a kind of key message from me, really. Um, it is, yeah, it, it's good and it's fun and, and we can all enjoy it and we should enjoy it. But I think we all should be quietly conscious of, of, uh, where we're riding and how we're riding, um, and how we're interacting with people as well. And, and I think that's just something that you do in everyday life that, that should come into, come into your being when you're riding a bike as well. Yeah. I think 20 years ago, it felt like if you, opened a conversation with the forestry commission or with the landowner that was a surefire way to get your trail shut down and it feels now in 2021 coming into 2022 there's a much much higher probability that that's going to go in your favor and that actually these conversations are being welcomed and are being productive there's plenty of examples of it and that as a mountain biker for me that feels great to think we've got to that place where you know, people are willing to listen to us. They are willing to let us be part of the outdoor uh, environment. And, you know, we're not frowned upon anymore, which is is a massive leap forward from where we are. So it's it sounds like there's a lot of positive stuff going on and a lot of good opportunities over the coming years to get better and better um, destinations for mountain biking that, that we can all ride and all enjoy and not see them knocked down every few years and have to rebuild them. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. I mean, it's still, it's still not a given everywhere, and we're, sure. you know, that's that's why these discussions are important. I think, and why it's important to show how important mountain biking can be for areas and for people. Um, something that's been quite nice in some of the discussions we've had locally um, with council or NRW is that you quite a lot of pe- these people you're talking to actually ride bikes too okay. and mountain bike too. And that's, again, not everywhere. Not everyone would understand mountain biking within these organisations. But yeah. there's kind of like an increasing number of people who do, um, which is maybe kind of helpful in a way. Well, that is helpful in a way. It's not the case everywhere. But yeah. the more people who understand it or recognise it, um, it's definitely helpful. Yeah, it's less alien to people, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. If people want to watch the film, take it all in, where do they need to go to to, to find it? It's being launched on Sunday the 19th of December. Uh-huh. So it will have been launched and that'll be on Specialized YouTube channel. Okay, cool. We'll stick a link in the show notes so that so people can find that. And I'd, you know, with uh, anything else to say about the film, I'd like to really say thank you to everyone we spoke to during the year. It's It's been a really, um, yeah, it's been a really kind of inspiring year talking to everyone involved, you know, Twitchardy Trails Association, Red Sheffield, Barry Sidings, um, Risker Riders. Um, kind of interesting coming from racing, you know, there's so much passion involved in racing, 
but also going to these areas and speaking to people who are making a real difference for the trails in that area you know that passion comes through you know in a slightly different way but you know in just as a kind of like moving way um which has been really cool so yeah just really appreciative of everyone who kind of gave us their time and talked yeah. to us. Yeah, there's some absolute legends in that film doing amazing work around the UK, creating, maintaining and and managing relationships that are enabling all of us to ride fantastic trails. So yeah, big shout out to you guys for showcasing that and, and keeping this topic and this conversation going. And, and yeah, massive respect to everyone featured in the film and I'm sure plenty of people behind the scenes that are doing incredible work to keep our trails going so yeah thank you all right that's probably a good place to sign off thank yeah. you for having us no it's an absolute yeah, pleasure thanks, thanks a lot and uh yeah look forward to seeing what you two get up to next yeah bit, bit of brain bit of brain space this <laughs> <laughs> goes out and then yeah we're making some plans nice one cheers for coming on thank you yeah thanks very much cheers All right, that's it for this episode with Manon and Tommy. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Canyon for supporting this episode. They've just launched their updated, big-hitting talk with all wheel size options covered and both aluminium and carbon versions available across a wide range of pricing. If you want to get your hands on one, then you can get free bike guard with your purchase by using the code all-features-unlocked-21 at the checkout. That's all-features-unlocked-21, all uppercase, at the checkout over on canyon.com before the 10th of January. Also, a massive thanks to Earshots. They've solved the issue of headphones falling out while riding with their patented magnetic ear clip design, so you can keep the motivation high while riding or training with your favourite tunes or podcasts. You can find out all about them over at earshots.com and to be in with a chance of winning one of two pairs of earshots, just head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash earshots and leave your name and email address before the 4th of January. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon, but until then, get out and ride. (laughs) 